Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Uh, good morning, everybody. In the midst of the Ontavin, it's quite strange having an enforced week out last week and will be for the next couple of weeks. But for this week, let's see what uh, South Africa throws up at us and perhaps the world. Before I look at what we, what passes for a normal day in South Africa and a normal day in South Africa is a very strange beast. I'd like to muse a little on 9-11 and the withdrawal from Afghanistan. It's quite an extraordinary thing that there are, I don't think there's, in my case, I don't think there's another image or set of images that is seared onto my brain as much as the images of the attacks on 9-11. In reality, I've just been watching a documentary series called Turning Point. The crash of the aeroplane into the Pentagon was horrific, and it looked horrific. But the crash of the aeroplanes into the Twin Towers was on in another level altogether. It, it, there was everything about it. It was where they happened, the iconic nature of those very, very tall buildings, the, the representation of wealth, of striving, of capitalism, of, uh, of achievement in, 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 the, in the Western world. And the very fact that, that Islamists managed to bring down those buildings was to me testimony to the very the poles apart culture western culture and arab culture middle eastern culture and the fact that and a bit like uh, like afghanistan you know a relatively rough unsophisticated um homegrown group of fighters who just had the patience to hang in there uh, ultimately sort of outsat the the mighty behemoth of 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 America. So it's that very very stark stark contrast, and the fact that these relative unsophisticated, some may argue, backward in the sense of being almost medieval societies, managed to put such a fundamental dent in in the West's and in America, and in particularly the case of America's sense of self esteem and who we were and our our, our aggression. And our confidence could be so fundamentally destroyed in in such a short period of time. But what's really come out of the last few weeks, the analysis of the of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, seeing the 20th anniversary of of the, of the attacks in 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 America, is. Despite not, not a whole lot of the discussion lies in the withdrawal from Afghanistan and whether it was wise, whether it, it was foolish, whether you can't make any moves out of a society, of a, out of a country that you've uh, that you've invaded. Twenty years is nothing in the scheme of things to see change, particularly in a, in, a, in a country whose culture is so fundamentally different. I'm not sure has ever been learned ever learned the lesson in government in America and possibly the, the rest of the West, but certainly there are many experts on it within think tanks, within universities, etc. The failure by the West to understand the nature of the societies that they go to war with. And this is particularly, I think this has been a, a fault line running through almost everything the West has done in the Middle East. It doesn't accept 
it's never accepted the fact that you're dealing with societies whose paradigm is completely and utterly different. These are the Middle East is largely populated, not entirely, but largely populated by tribal societies where the roles of clans within those tribes and the roles of families within those clans play a much more important role in people's lives than the than a country, than a national entity. It always surprises me that that governments such as the American government has, have never understood that. And it goes to the fact that they do not appear to have understood the situation of Israel and the Palestinians within that context. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. I'd just like to carry on the theme because I, w- I watched a video made by some of my colleagues who were discussing the withdrawal from uh, Afghanistan in the light of uh, of uh, 9-11. And uh, the CEO, Franz Cronier, has just come back from States. Uh, he was in the States for a month and, and gave us some of his impressions of, of what was happening. And he said, there's, there's no doubt there's a dislocation in America. There's a The confidence has sapped. The people are, Americans, particularly on both sides of the political divide, are almost at war with each other. Unlike 2000, 2001, when the attacks occurred, American unity and American strength was probably at its apotheosis. Now it's almost the complete opposite of. And he said you have, it's reflected in the fact that some of the military concerns, you know, some of the military leaders and the governmental leaders are concerned that Afghan society um, about the use of pronouns, the recognition of LGBTQ rights, etc., etc. I mean, I don't think any of us would regard that as remotely on the horizon when you have such fundamental abuses of human rights as we would see them, the treatment of women, uh, particularly with regard to education, with regard to standing, the fact that they have to wear uh, niqabs of the most extraordinary kind, they, the, the levels of rape and dominance by uh, Afghan men. Those are all huge issues that, that, the, that uh, a country like America, which, is, which was in Afghanistan, would have to deal with. And they're worrying about issues that are becoming the, 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 the flashpoints in American society. And that too, to me, indicates, uh, indicates a problem. Um, the Interesting point that was made in this discussion was that the, if you want to see change in a country that you invade or that you take control of, it takes time and that in a country like Afghanistan, 20 years is nothing. If you look at the fact that America took control in places like Germany after World War II, Japan after World War II, South Korea after the Korean War, they still virtually have a presence in those countries. And, and I think in the case of Germany, they have more soldiers there, even though they don't play anywhere near a significant, a significant role. But they are still in Germany 70 years later. It's, it's both, it's the, the fact that these, the 20 years, particularly when you're dealing with a, a, a sort of a medieval society, is Nothing. You cannot expect to see results. And perhaps the main mistake America made was it went into Afghanistan with the mission of destroying the Taliban. It was successful. And then mission creep occurred and it decided that it would try and turn Taliban into a democracy. The problem was then is it had to make the decision. Either it was going to get out, and I'm sure part of the reason it didn't was it felt like, you know, it would have to keep an eye on 
the resurgence of something like Taliban, but you had eventually a resurgence, but preceded by the rise of ISIS, or you had to commit to changing the society. And changing the society, profound amount of time spent, 20 years being nothing. It also meant that the, 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 sorry, the military and the government of America had to have a concrete and cohesive plan and that plan had to involve communicating with each other. And much of the criticism I have heard of American involvement in Afghanistan over 20 years was they never really had a plan and they never really understood how the society worked. So perhaps in the, in the circumstances one has to look at the withdrawal and say the withdrawal reflected the quality of the involvement in uh, in, 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 in Iran. So... Sorry, in, in, in Afghanistan. So the, the, the world power that is America, has, its power has been dented and possibly for decades, if not hundreds of years. The shift is moving to the east, moving to Russia, moving to, and certainly from a democratic point of view, the only power that really stands significantly is India. What, what we daily find in the South African context. And guess what has happened again? Our public protector, Busisiwe Kobani, has lost her bid to appeal against a, ju- a judgment in which her report on Ravin Gordon's pension payment to Ivan Pile was rejected. It was, in every sense of the word, the Gauteng High Court rejected the report. So Mkobani, being the, the person that she is, took it to the Supreme Court of Appeals. To, to appeal against the dismissal of her, of, of her report. And the Supreme Court of Appeals dismissed her application for appeal, apparently without even hearing evidence. She's racking up these, these failures left, right and centre. And uh, you have to wonder. She, I mean, she's also challenging the right of, the, of our parliament to hold a hearing against her to consider her appe- appeasement. Um, the problem is when you have access to public money, there is no limit to what you can do against the possible, for or against the possible legal uh, terrains that you may wander into. And unfortunately, we are paying the cost for that. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. I'd like to welcome my guest and colleague David Ansara and apologize for keeping him hanging on. David, welcome to the RR show. Sara, always a pleasure to speak with you. Great. Um, David, I'm, I'd like you to introduce yourself. You're CEO of the uh, Center for Risk Analysis. And introduce yourself, and please introduce the Center for Risk Analysis. What is it? What does it do? It is a, let's call it a subdivision of, of the IRR. It's a standalone entity. And it does something quite different to what people are used to hearing about the IRR as a think tank Battling the uh, battling, uh, fighting the battle of ideas, and classical liberalism. How does where does the CRT fit into that idea, and what does it do? There's, the Center for Risk Analysis, also known as the CRA, not to be confused with the CRT. Very much on um, our minds, yes. <laughs> um, it is policy advisory unit. So we spend a lot of time working, particularly with uh, large multinational corporates, financial institutions, foreign missions in South Africa. Um, really any organization and increasingly individuals that want to understand the key risks in South Africa at the moment from a political perspective, but also in terms of the economic environment and the operating environment from a business perspective. And we're also increasingly now 
uh, offering our services to uh, individuals. So uh, small businesses, consultants. Pre-COVID, we had a, a an institutional subscription model, but we decided to pivot during the the crisis to offer our services directly. And those services include regular reports on uh, various uh, political and economic issues. Uh, we have large data sets that our clients can access, but we also do a lot of briefings and, and online webinars. So in the run-up to the elections, for example, we're doing quite a lot of analysis on the various political parties, the available funding, the macroeconomic uh, conditions in the in the country. So uh, we're very busy, and we do less of the kind of advocacy work that – uh, colleagues in the IRR would be engaged in. Um, but we also have uh, quite an extensive media presence. We have a daily YouTube channel, uh, various podcasts, and, and our website often has quite a lot of insights and analysis as well. So mm. uh, so we do put out quite a lot of stuff into the public mm. domain. Intrigued about the fact that uh, I know that the IRR had for years been involved in advocacy of ideas and information in in the big business sector. What made you sort of pivot to attracting the individual? Because one would think perhaps automatically that issues of of economics, finance, and and, and politics together would be a formal business interest. Um, but you've pivoted, and what have your results? What results have you had from from paying attention to the individual as customer? Well, I think what's really interesting is that uh, a lot of uh, larger corporates, you know, they, they tend to have big budgets for subscriptions to Bloomberg or, or Fitch. Um, you know, if you think of a large bank, mm. they, they have a team of analysts, uh, um, economists, equity analysts, etc., who would be uh, be accessing their own uh, information and data sets. But, you know, most uh, businesses in South Africa are small businesses. They hire a few people. There might be a kind of a boutique consultancy or a small manufacturer, but, you know, they're very much keen to understand what's happening in the broader environment. So, um, and, you know, they're also often at the coalface. So when there's uh, a militant strike at your manufacturing plant, then that affects you quite, quite deeply. Mm. Um, and, you know, with respect to some of our premium clients, uh, you know, a, a banker in Santon will probably not be able to tell you what the, uh, the hmm. price of bread is, uh, hmm. whereas the, uh, the the person um, uh, sweeping the the corridors might be kind of closer in terms of the economic uh, activity and understanding the the uh, you know inflation, for example. Hmm. So, um, you know, so I think uh, also just given the nature of our work, we we often had individuals approaching us, and and then. Uh, you know, we, we were keen to help them, but it was just, you know, we needed to focus on our paying clients. So this is a really good way for us to, um, you know, keep, keep them engaged and informed. So one of our key products is the, the weekly risk alert, which appears in your inbox and on your cell phone every Monday morning at 7 a.m. And, uh, that highlights the key risks for the week ahead. It's more of a short term view. We do sometimes put some of our longer term views in there as well. Uh, but we have a lot of uh, great feedback on that short two-page report, um, mm. and uh, individuals in particular really mm. appreciate that. Mm. No, I mean I, I I I either read or watch the, uh, the the what comes out at the beginning of the week, um, partly to see if there's any you know if there's, an, there's something I've missed that I should incorporate in what I consider, and uh, also it's it's a it's very they're, they're very clear and they and they they're not. Uh, 
they're not put, they're not created in using a using a great deal of jargon, which uh, can be obviously intimidating to the non-finance types like like myself. Um, but just to come to point, because we'll we'll discuss it in in more detail. But I'm intrigued at exactly the point you raise about the the businessmen individuals at the coalface wanting to understand the broader ramifications of what's happening in South Africa versus the guys at the very high level who are supposed to make policy and uh, plan for five years ahead. And and yet one gets an impression that big business is either naive or, or shall we say, even ignorant about the role that politics and broader economics plays in what happens to their business. I'm, I'm not sure if people quite understood that. Uh, am, am, am I reading it incorrectly? But there does seem to be that failure to understand that everything a business does or plans to do can be impacted on upon by, by politics. Absolutely. And the policies that are in play at the moment in South Africa are pretty hostile to, to business activity. So we mentioned uh, the... The labor regulatory framework, so it's very, you're a labor lawyer uh, by in, in terms of your background, Sarah, so, mm. so you would know this more than I do, but uh, the Basic Conditions of Employment Act, the Labor Relations Act, the National Minimum Wage Act, these all constrain uh, businesses and dampen their enthusiasm for hiring new staff because it's just an increased risk. Um, the extension of collective bargaining agreements is, is another mm. um, uh, another area where Poor people are essentially priced out of the the labour market, and uh, you know we, depending on how you measure it, uh, you know we now have upwards of 11 million people on the expanded definition who don't have a job. Mm, mm. Some of those people have, have actively, uh, you know, they've stopped actively looking for work, uh, but that's a lamentable situation. Um, and so, uh, just to get back to your question, I mean, a lot of big businesses obviously are keen to not antagonize the government, and that's understandable. And, you know, there have been instances going all the way back to Thabo Mbeki's era. Uh, if you remember Anglo-American Tony Treya, uh, he was attacked viciously for mm. being critical of government policy. I can't remember when it was exactly in the 2010s when mm. FNB ran a, a critical advert of uh, which were, they were then attacked and lambasted and threatened with the removal of, of their uh, government uh, banking contracts. So, uh, you know, there, there are significant risks to raising your head above the parapet. And, mm. you know, I think, uh, but in, in many respects also, organized business, they are incumbents. Um, so they, they, they tend to actually favor the status quo in many respects. Um, they also perhaps don't have as much of an interest in uh, seeing uh, policies that are introduced that increase competition uh, and help the little guys to uh, to attack their market dominance. Mm. Um, you know, so in many respects, if you think of the telecommunications, for example, uh, you know, there are two major incumbents. It's essentially a duopoly. Mm. Um, and liberalizing spectrum licensing and, uh, you know, government basically controls all telecommunications licensing. So, uh, you know, that, that you can understand why they would be reluctant to, you know, to see that change. Mm. Mm. And, you know, so, and in terms of big business, uh, if you consider Business Unity South Africa, they tend to have a go along to get along approach. Uh, but what ends up happening is 
they go in with the intention of saying, well, we, we want to have an audience with government and we don't want to jeopardize that. Mm. And so it's important that we have the ear of the cabinet minister. Um, but I, I think there perhaps are somewhat uh, naive or underestimating of the role that ideology plays in mm. government policy formation, uh, which tends to be very statist, very centralizing, uh, wants uh, government to be the key actor in society and the ANC uh, as uh, the, um, you know, they're guided a lot by uh, the ideological framework of uh, the new, de- the National Democratic Revolution, which goes all the way back to 1969, mm. which is essentially a socialist-inspired uh, ideological doctrine, which is very hostile to property rights and to free enterprise and, and private ownership. Um, so, you know, I think you can try to have dialogue um, with, with uh, what are essentially um, ideologues, and but there's a limit to, to how effective that is. And in many respects, the ANC, if you look back on some of their policy reversals, um, they respond very, very much to pressure. Mm. And so we don't see the kind of uh, coordinated lobbying activity. Uh, it's perhaps a, a, a trait or a characteristic of South Africa um, embodied in many respects by the president that you know, we want these kind of uh, feel-good roundtable dialogues where mm. all stakeholders are engaged and, and everybody has their voice heard. But South Africa doesn't need consensus. South Africa needs hard decisions and difficult trade-offs, uh, and there will be winners and losers uh, in those decisions. Um, but that's not politically palatable at the moment. So uh, the result is that we have no reform and, and very little prospect of reform mm. on the horizon. Yeah, I'd like before before we look at that sort of more, in more detail because that was very much the uh, the subject of the risk alert from the beginning of this week. Is what I mean, business and big business notoriously uh, looks to uh, cushy relationships with governments worldwide uh, for contracts, etc., to favour them. And, and and small business is in a completely different situation. It 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 exists and survives by pretty much by itself it may supply big business uh, and depend on what big business does in that respect but it's not it's much more on the ground it's much less naive about it it's it's this short-termism and this and this naivety that i find really fascinating because if you look at you know investment has virtually has disappeared um, the factors that cause the disappearance both from from uh, foreign uh, companies and local companies, if you look at, this, at the mining industry uh, at, over the last uh, 20 years, the complete withdrawal, that's what, seems, that's what business, big business seems to do, is it withdraws, um, it, and it, it, it may give a range of reasons for it, but a lot of that withdrawal has to do with the sort of strictures the government policy place on industries. So industries like mining, the, the registration process, the the red tape is so onerous. Things take so long to get mm. done and there's so much interference with how business structures itself and the role the BEE plays. Um, and yet the, the, the ANC is floundering in a way we have never seen before. So now, surely now would be a time for big business to say, if you want our help, this is what you've got to give us in return. We're powerful enough to help you, but we need these reforms. You don't hear it. You well, there, there the is one, one prominent CEO who, who has articulated those arguments. That's Neil Froneman. Absolutely. And he's argued that business should be taking a much more transactional approach with government mm. and that 
exactly as you say. Uh, Savanya is a, one of the largest, if not the largest, mm. private employer in South Africa. So, you know, they have negotiating power. And I think uh, businesses, you know, I wouldn't say they should be needlessly antagonistic. Mm. But they should also understand that they do have uh, negotiating power. And, I mean, that was demonstrated when Nkhantla uh, Nene was, was sacked as finance mm-hmm. minister um, and uh, and the weekend special uh, Des van Royen was appointed and he didn't last long and then business flexed its muscles. So, I mean, you could make an argument there that, that senior business people were, uh, you know, you know that their position of access enabled them to do that and having kept their powder dry, that enabled them to, to apply that pressure when it was needed. But mm. if you think of the losses that were incurred, the fact that that decision was even made in the first place, mm. Uh, is because the president at the time felt he had the room to do that. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think uh, I think a bit more uh, focus pressure is required from business. And, you know, I think ultimately it would serve their bottom line to mm. do so. Um, because if we have a, a much more dynamic, open economy in South Africa, there, there would be a larger customer bases, more uh, free exchange, uh, and, and that would, would create opportunities. And... You know, I think a lot of uh, businesses, when things were hairy uh, during the Zuma years, uh, they sought opportunities abroad in Australia, Nigeria, wherever. But many of those companies have not done particularly well abroad. Um, mm. And, you know, so I think the the local market does offer, uh, you know, potentially very high opportunities. But we, uh, our policies are, are choking off the blood supply. And, mm. and I think there needs to be a realization of that and, and articulation of the benefits of growth. And I think a, a lot of the language that you see from uh, uh, in uh, the, the kind of corporate relations departments of businesses is around kind of feel-good things like mm. uh, corporate social responsibility and, uh, you know, painting schools on Mandela Day and mm. uh, getting rid of plastic bags uh, at the checkout counter. But uh, I think uh, there are much more serious problems in South Africa, and a lot of them have their root in policy. Mm. Uh, so I think um, you know businesses need to realize what's at stake and start articulating the benefits of growth, and that mm. is essentially capitalism. Mm. Um, and I think we need to be making much more uh, confident and articulate arguments in favor of capitalism mm. in South Africa. No, absolutely. And Sabanya is still standing, notwithstanding that uh, Neil Furnaman has taken on government. He doesn't do, as you say, he doesn't do it all the time. He selects, he chooses his moments and it's very effective. And the problem is, and this is where we come to the risk alert, is that the, the alert basically uh, puts forward that there is no reform and there is not likely to be reform. And the lack of reform is, I was going to say coming from, but you can't, a lack can't come from anywhere. But the government is not a reformist government. Nothing that the president says about reform is going to translate into the sort of reform that we need. And that is form, reform towards a state of capitalism and free enterprise. Yeah, there certainly is a lack of reform impetus coming from the government itself, uh, which I think has been demonstrated uh, by uh, for example, the new finance minister, Enoch Gorongwana, I mean, he said that uh, race-based policies do not affect um, growth. Um, uh, the mining minister, uh, his department is in an utter shambles. Uh, it's almost impossible to 
to get a, a mining license. So putting aside the ideological problems there of state ownership of mineral rights, is the capacity, you know, the printers aren't working, the officials aren't doing their jobs. So, uh, you know, it's effectively putting a, a handbrake on new mining investment. And this is at a time when there's, you know, global commodity prices have been doing fairly well recently. They've tapered uh, quite a bit um, lately, but, uh, you know, we're not capitalizing. So, uh, and, you know, there's the sense that, uh, I mean, in the build-up to the cabinet reshuffle that, oh, you know, now this is the time for the president to, to show his hand and government business was lobbying government for, uh, you know, for this cabinet reshuffle. And what did they get? The resignation of the reformist uh, or at least the more moderate finance minister, Tito Mboweni. Mm-hmm. So something's not adding up in terms of the, the lobbying activities there, Sarah. High FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Right. Welcome back, everybody. And uh, welcome back to our guest, David and Sarah of the uh, Center for Risk Analysis. And uh, I, I'd like to just go back quickly on the point about the uh, Enoch Gorongwana saying that uh, BEE does not deter investment. Uh, I've read a number of pieces over the over the last few years where foreign companies say the BE is the biggest deterrent to investment. And the, the most striking one was a company that said, you know, of all their global business, South Africa represents three percent of their operations and their profit, uh, operational cost and profit, and one third of their compliance issues. I mean. That's that's an absolute disaster because you're essentially going into a place to do business and you're not doing a great deal of business. That's quite right, Sarah. And if you consider that South Africa, its GDP amounts to not even half a percent of global GDP. So that's how much we contribute to all economic output in the world. Uh, South Africa is just not the priority for investors that it used to be. Um, and in many investments, if you consider the motor industry, for example, there are a number of automotive manufacturers in places like uh, Port Elizabeth and Durban, but those are legacy investments. So there's uh, occasionally some recapitalization that happens and there's uh, much fanfare at our annual investment conferences. But in terms of new investment, that's essentially drying up. And BE is a compliance burden that many businesses have to bear. And interestingly enough, uh, some of those automotive manufacturers are exempted from BE because they just are so significant and so large uh, that uh, they uh, are given a free pass by the Department of Trade, Industry and Competition. <laughs> and I think that demonstrates um, on my podcast, Solutions with David Ansara, I had a very interesting guest, Pete LaRue of the business group mm. Sokolicha, and they're very much focused on the, the small businesses, the everyman kind of businesses. And, you know, you were saying that in terms of your interactions with government, you either want to be so small that you fly under the radar of business mm-hmm. or so big that you're above the radar of government. Um, but uh, you don't want to be in the radar. Of, of <laughs> but you, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's a good point. And um, before we uh, wrap up and uh, get, uh, let you give our listeners your details, just talk about the idea of punctuated equilibrium because we talk, we, we, we look at this long slide, um, of the ANC and nothing really changes and there, there is no reform, but there are circumstances where suddenly change can happen, 
change of government even can happen very suddenly and relatively unexpectedly. What are the circumstances, what are the conditions that allow that to happen? So in terms of this thesis, so what this is, essentially it's a theory of change and from a a change management scholar. And uh, this is an argument that has been articulated by our director, John Endres. And essentially what it says is that uh, you you often have, you know, change is not uh, constantly Mm. uh, occurring in this kind of dramatic and haphazard way, is that often there are prolonged periods of of stasis and, and stability where various pressures are being brought to bear, but the system kind of absorbs those pressures. But some kind of catalyzing event can radically and dramatically change the circumstances that uh, that society finds itself in. I mean, if you consider, um, for example, the Weimar Republic uh, in Germany, mm. uh, for, for many, many years, the, the Weimar Republic was able to, to kind of maintain some kind of, uh, you know, kind of semblance of stability. And then uh, inflation ran rampant and there was political fragmentation and the and the Nazis obviously uh, came to power with all of the disastrous consequences of that. If you look domestically in South Africa, uh, the where have major turning points occurred in South Africa's history? It's usually been uh, because of some uh, exogenous variable like a, a world war. So if you consider the First World War, the fallout from that, uh, there was the uh, kind of the Rand Revolt and the mine workers' strike uh, in the early 20s. Um, after the Second World War, that was when uh, Smuts lost power in 48 and the National Party came to power. And uh, in parallel to those events were economic crises as well, fiscal mm. crunches where the government essentially ran out of money. It was the same thing in the 1980s. Mm. Uh, the, the global environment changed with the end of the Cold War. Uh, South Africa was uh, had been living under states of emergency and enduring divestment campaigns. Uh, there, uh, uh, there were a number of our sovereign uh, credit facilities were not rolled over, um, and uh, there was a, a financial collapse which triggered the uh, reformist elements of the National Party um, to, you know, to, to open up dialogue with the ANC. Mm-hmm. And you know, when F. W. de Klerk uh, was education minister and then later became president. Uh, you know, he was not considered to be a reformist president. Mm. He was seen as quite verkrumpt, uh, but he was actually the unlikely person who, who opened South Africa up. So, and as we mentioned, the, I mean, South Africa's fiscal situation is dire at the mm. moment. The government is spending well beyond its means. Uh, debt to GDP ratios are going up north of 80%. Uh, economists advise that you should be at around the 60% uh, level. Uh, we're spending uh, our, our budget deficit last year was negative 14%. So that's higher than it's sure. ever been throughout the history of South Africa since the union. So, uh, you know, the, something has to give. And it might might seem that, well, the government's not really pushing reforms. A big business is quite complacent, not, not advocating openly for reforms. Um, the official opposition is struggling to gain traction. They actually have some reformist ideas but are not really given much uh, attention by the mainstream media or by other analysts and commentators. Um, but the the reality of South Africa's financial position is going to hit hard at some mm. point. Mm. And that is uh, going to have political fallout. Well, basically what you're saying, if I understand it, is that as soon as, once you really run out of money, 
changes changes is likely or possible and the ANC itself has run out of money which is a first which has never happened before David before I let you go tell us where we on the social media we can find you and uh, just indicate the the two podcasts that the, that you do and and what people can expect from them if they go online thanks sorry yeah so there are a few channels where you can follow us so the first is the, the Center for Risk Analysis channel on YouTube. So that's every weekday morning at 7 a.m. We have a short video that's about 10 minutes long. So it's a great way to uh, get access to some of our, our, our basic insights. Um, we also interview guests on the show. Yeah, you yourself have been a guest. Um, and so we have a number of very interesting commentators appearing there. And then uh, I also host a podcast, Solutions with David and Sarah. That's every Sunday at uh, 6 p.m. And uh, if you just type in my name, David Ansari, you'll, you'll find that on YouTube um, and wherever you get your your podcasts. And then uh, also we, we are currently running a 30-day free trial to the CRA subscription. So that gives you access to all of our reports uh, and data. Uh, if you go to www.cra-sa.com, You'll find a link there where you can where you can subscribe. That's no cost to you. If you want to uh, cancel on day 29, then you're welcome to do that. But we'll, that'll get you on our database, and you'll receive all of our alerts and invitations to webinars and so on. Uh, so I, I think that's the best way to uh, to engage with us. Um, David, uh, very, a lot for people to absorb, to go to, to watch, to read. Thank you very much for coming on board and. Uh, uh, discussing the, very much an issue of the day, issue, issues affecting the society, and uh, hopefully we'll get you back in the not too distant future. Thanks so much, Sorry. Yeah, any time, and great show. Keep keep it going. I think it's uh, a, a really great offering. Hi FM, your station of choice since two thousand and eight. Welcome back, and let's have a look at uh, a few little stories before we go. Uh, just to note, there was a report on the South African Health Products Regulatory Authority, SAPRA, and they're, they're the body that that investigates and approves medicines and vaccines, etc., etc. And there was a report on uh, EWN that said that it had received 86 reports of deaths following a COVID-19 immunization. However, they said that none could be linked to, to the vaccine. Um, the regulator, the health department and other scientific bodies have been reporting on adverse effects following, immune, following immunization um, and recipients of vaccines have been encouraged to report adverse events. But Professor Hanley Mayer, chairperson of the National Vaccine Immunization Safety Expert Committee, said that 40 cases had been investigated to assess a possible link between vaccination and death. Um, And among the 40 vaccine casualties assessed, none of those were related to the vaccines that are being used in South Africa. And just another little point that I saw concerning SAPRA is there's been pressure on SAPRA uh, and criticism for not approving the Russian vaccine uh, for use. But everything I've heard about the Russian vaccine from people in the medical fraternity is its e- efficacy has not been well and is proved and established and would fall way below the standards of the vaccines that we do use. So 
that we will continue to use the ones we do, and at this, this stage we will not add the uh, the Russian vaccine to it. Then a, a, a really weird little story to end off with, and that is, it's a video, I actually didn't look at it, I couldn't, I, I kind of couldn't bring myself to do it. It is footage of a Tembisa policewoman ordering a hitman, a hit, ordering hitmen to murder her sister and five children. And she apparently is reported to be, to say they are to leave no witnesses behind. Um, on the one hand, that's an, ext- an extreme, extremely um, distressing story. The, the policewoman is appearing in court at the moment. But on the other hand, it's kind of very South African. We have a sort of penchant for, for violence, revenge and death that I'm sure it happens in other parts of the world, but is really a, a, a considerable has a considerable impact on our society. And you have to wonder: is it is it a, a, a mental thing, which presumably not, because she is standing trial? Is it an issue of sort of overwhelming societal pressure? Is it a sort of personality aspect? Is it a combination of all three, four, five? I don't entirely know, but it is. Very, very disturbing given our very high levels of violence against women and against children and the regard with which women are held still in parts of the society by men in a very inferior and possessive way. So on that unpleasant little note, um, I look forward to seeing you in a few weeks' time uh, after the Ontavian and bringing you a new and different selection of, of guests in the meantime, um, Shana Tovah, well over the fast, and we'll see you in October.